So our speaker today is Stephen Kendrick. Uh, Mr. Kendrick is senior minister of the First Church Boston, a position he's held since 2001, and with his wife, Liz Kendrick, has led numerous Unitarian Universalist seminars at Manchester College, uh, Oxford. He's written a number of books uh, which have been reviewed or otherwise featured in publications such as the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Hartford Current, Utney Reader, and American Heritage. This afternoon, though, and on the occasion of the publication of his latest book, The Lively Place, Mount Auburn, America's First Garden Cemetery and Its Revolutionary and Literary Residence, Mr. Kendrick will speak to us about that most lively and incredibly beautiful of places, its founding, legacy, and role in memorializing many influential Americans, including religious leaders, abolitionists, poets, and reformers. So please join me in welcoming Stephen Kendrick to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you, David. Uh, it is a delight to be back speaking here at the Athenaeum. Um, I love being able to present my books here. It's my opportunity to give back after they're forgiving decades of overdue books. I appreciate that very much. And uh, thank you for making time in your busy schedule to, to be here. Um, Maud Auburn Cemetery is one of the most remarkable places in America. Uh, raise your hand if you're well familiar with it. I doubt if you'd be here unless you'd been walking through many, many times. Well, Mont Auburn is full of poets. It's a forested American version of the Westminster Abbey's Poets' Corner. Along Tulip Path, you can find the Creeley family plot. One more of the clan has joined their company with the death of the poet Robert Creeley in 2005. He wrote a calm, subdued poem about visiting his future gravesite, in which he describes the, quote, the point of hill we come to, small rise here. He noticed all the path names as he, after feeling a bit lost, as most of us do when we go visit Mount Auburn, finally came to that sacred spot, located in what he calls that insistent rise to heaven. Creeley's wife, Penelope, later wrote to the Mount Auburn staff about that day and about Creeley's deep love for the spot. His sense of connection to Mount Auburn was as intricate as his connection to his family and to New England. Robert felt a deep kinship here with the people and the trees, with the roll of the land, the changes of light and weather. In life, he loved the company as he called his friends, fellow poets and beloveds, and liked the idea of sharing some of the same company in death as well. Quote, with wave of hand, I wanted them one way or the other to come, go with them. And so the poet and his wife strolled through the fall afternoon, an afternoon much like this, in the shafting golden sunlight and blazing leaves, and then Creeley fell silent. His wife asked him what he felt. Did he feel sad or spooked? Oh, no, he said. Not at all. I feel comforted. It is so reassuring. I'm home. 
And I think many of us feel that when we go to Mount Auburn, even if we don't know anyone that's buried there. And when we go there, it is more than just a cemetery. It is a garden. When I was talking to the editors of Beacon Press about this book, the original conception was that I would sort of assemble about 30 essays of some of the fascinating people buried there. And that was in my comfort zone. But uh, the editor looked at me and she said, I don't want to publish that book. And she forced me to go into an area I didn't know, which is nature. She said, I want a book about a garden. And that's the book I tried to write. It is a garden of souls, yes. But it is one of the most beautiful places in America. And in its long history, as the world's first rural cemetery and America's first rural garden cemetery, yes, it's historically quite important, but it's an amazingly small place. Now, you can lose that sense because you can get lost in the, the wonderful winding labyrinth that it is. But it's actually very small. Originally, only 72 acres and now 175 with some 98,000 graves. In terms of historic and important uh, cemeteries around the world, it's probably the smallest. 2003 is designated as a National Historic Landmark, one of only 2,500 places in the whole country. Why? Well, because of its historic nature, which we'll talk more about later, but also because of that garden quality I was talking about. It has recently been designated as a level three arboretum. There are arboretums that are larger, they have more trees, but, but none have such gorgeous specimens. Indeed, there are still 12 trees that exist from its founding in 1831. And each time one of those trees dies, the staff dies. Something inside them dies too. They work so hard to preserve each and every living tree because it's, it goes back to the founding itself. And it's just recently been given a leadership and energy and an environmental design grant from the U.S. Green Building Council. Everything that the staff does and also in the ways in which they encourage New England families and families from around the country to come and to bury their dead to change the ways in which they memorialize. And so people are being buried in wicker and in shrouds and new spaces where people are cremated and then become part of a larger company. It's quite amazing. I, I once did a service there for a young woman. It was quite tragic. She left two children and she was a stand-up comedian. And uh, she wanted me to do the service. And at the end of the service, she was going to have a screen roll down. And she had filmed her stand-up routine for all the people there at her service. And it was quite remarkable. And there were obviously laughter and tears both. And as I was standing with Tom Johnson, uh, the family services person at Mount Auburn, um, we retreated just a little bit to give the family some room and some space. And I said to Tom, I said, so you know, thinking Mount Auburn was kind of a museum. He said, how long, I asked, will you still be burying people here? And Tom said, ah, about 200 years. It is, in that sense, very much a living and a lively place. It's just received a recent 
collection stewardship grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Sciences. Why? Because of the importance and amazing fragility of 30 of its most significant monuments, it is like melting art. In effect, Mount Auburn possesses one of the most important historical art collections in terms of sculpture in America. What's another aspect of this lively place? Well, the fact that a quarter of a million people come through to look at the birds. In fact, if you talk about Mount Auburn to most people, they go, yes, I was there in the spring. I was part of the riot, the bird circus. Uh, people go there uh, literally by the throngs. It was just designated an important bird area by the Massachusetts Audubon Society. And it is. It's one of the great places in America for birding. And it remains, as I said, an active graveyard. All of these functions, they combine to reinforce one another. I think of it as like a small jewel where all of these aspects sort of reinforce each other. When I was a student at Harvard Divinity School a long time ago, my wife and I took frequent walks in Mount Auburn. I never dreamt I would come back. I never dreamt I would write about it. And indeed, I only knew one little thing about it other than it was beautiful and a place to escape Harvard. I had encountered in the cultural historian Philip Reyes, The Hour of Our Death, a brief mention of Mount Auburn about how important it was because it was a crucial turning point in how mortality was viewed in our modern age as a harbinger of death's beautification. He called it a romantic oasis. And it's true. Death never looked so good. But when I left Cambridge and Harvard, I didn't really think any more about Mount Auburn. Some years later, I was a bit shocked reading Gary Will's book, Lincoln at Gettysburg, and encountered the author's lofty evaluation of Mount Auburn's place in American life. He said that when Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address, quote, in a space of a mere 272 words, Lincoln brought to bear the rhetoric of the Greek revival, the categories of transcendentalism, and the imagery of the rural cemetery movement. Indeed, he was preceded by Edward Everett, one of the founding's fathers, who spoke for two hours to Lincoln's two and a half minutes. And yet, the Gettysburg Cemetery founded very much on the principles. The founding of Central Park in New York City founded very much on the principles of Mount Auburn. And indeed, the entire national park system. These things echo what the founders achieved in the creation of Mount Auburn. But it's even more than that, because this generation, in 1831 when it was founded, this generation believed in the absolute intermixture of soul and nature and indwelling divinity, the American dream called transcendentalism. And they found in the creation of Mount Auburn an expression of that thin horizon between life and death. And here in Mount Auburn, even today, I believe that you can come about as close as possible as you can get to the energy of early America held under the sway of these visions, these hopes, the promise of a nation as a new Eden. Moving through the imposing gray Egyptian-style gateway today, one encounters a designed landscape 
representing in a real way the hopes and visions of our ancestors, citizens of a proud young republic. Each generation since has left its mark on Mount Auburn, its quiet roads and winding forested paths. They will all eventually take you, if you're patient enough, if you're willing, to reach the very center, its physical center as well as its historical center, and that is Consecration Dell. Now, I had been visiting Mount Auburn for many years before I went to the Dell. And I had made a huge mistake because it is right there that you feel so close to our forebears. You get a glimpse of what they dreamt and what they believed and what they thought about life and death. That verdant labyrinth comes to the hidden heart where it all begins. And when it began, Joseph's story, then associate Justice of the Supreme Court spoke for everyone. He said, what is the grave then to us but a thin barrier dividing time from eternity and earth from heaven? And on that day, September 24th, 1831, over 2,000 Bostonians gathered on little wooden benches in a semicircle around that dell. And in that silence, that green shrouded dell, believing that something new was being created there. They believed in the allure of what our forebears called the newness, the American newness, a sense that Americans could achieve and create anything, and that Mount Auburn was going to be a way in which their dream, their vision of life could be given full expression. And I came to realize that I wasn't really writing a book about a cemetery at all but rather about an array of dynamic souls caught up in a generation that believed it was caught up in the cusp of history, the era of transcendentalism, innovation, invention, and reform. They believed in that new Eden. And Mount Auburn was not a place for them of death, so much as the distilled essence of where divinity and human energy could meet and then dwell. The citizens of Boston believed that they were shattering a wall of ignorance, particularly as they embarked in transforming the brute realities of death and burial. The energies of this new time were directed everywhere in a tidal wave of reform and revelation fit for what Emerson called this American, this new soul. In the era of stacking up piles of moldering bodies and bones and hastily interred into the crowded, churchyards of Puritan times, that was over. And as life was being transformed, so was death. But I want to say something else about what makes Mount Auburn so beautiful and so unique. And that is its essence of the democratic vision. Let us face it, in death, it is the ultimate democracy. Mount Auburn is a significant place because its founders in 1831 did something that was present almost nowhere else in America. And that is that anyone and everyone could be buried there. Free blacks and Jews, the rare renegade Roman Catholic, people of all faiths, economic classes, and circumstances were welcomed. William Clandendo, previous president of Mount Auburn, talks about 
how Longfellow the poet is buried there. Lots of people go visit his grave. He says, but, but, but the blacksmith he wrote about is also buried there. And then I would add that along with Dexter Pratt the blacksmith also was Mary Walker, the free black woman who bought Dexter Pratt's house, which is now the Cambridge Adult Center for Learning. And she is buried just steps away from Harriet Jacobs, who wrote Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, a book that was so radical and so disturbing that many people refused to believe that it wasn't a novel or that a white abolitionist hadn't written it. And only in the last 40 years have we realized the, the genius of Harriet Jacobs. And she was a free black who managed to get her family from the South, just like Mary Walker. And they were friends. And they were buried very close to each other. And the reason that I ended up writing this book is my son and I together had written a book about Benjamin Roberts and his daughter Sarah. Uh, we wrote a book called Sarah's Long Walk about the desegregation of the Boston schools in 1845. And Benjamin Roberts is buried there. We don't know where his daughter is buried. We think perhaps in New Haven, but we're not sure. But Benjamin Roberts' grave is there, that free black printer who changed American history because he sued the city of Boston and it went to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and eventually it is the only case which is footnoted in Brown versus Board of Education that transformed American life forever. So these are the kinds of stories that are everywhere in Mount Auburn. And the staff and historians are working to find more and more. But sometimes they're obscure stories. And sometimes they're just the stories of people like you and me. When I'm asked to do the Christmas service at Mount Auburn, the chapel is filled with hundreds of people who have buried someone beloved in the last four or five years. And they all bring a candle, and then they take it out after the service and form a circle of light around Asia Gray Garden. Every stone is a story. Every monument is a love story. And I tried to take that seriously in writing this book. Reverend Peter Gomes, a masterful rhetorical genius, he summed up the founders, quote, splendid enterprise like this. A cemetery ought to be a place where the living and the dead mix in happy and useful terms. This is described as a place of repose, and so it is, but it is also a place of purpose. And that purpose celebrates life and beauty, nature and the mysteries of God, which the theologians themselves cannot even begin to express or understand. And so my title, The Lively Place, was not chosen through whimsy or irony. The streets, the paths of Mount Auburn are constantly full of people seeking something. Now, admittedly, sometimes I taught, along with my wife Liz, all of our children to drive at Mount Auburn because, hey, what can go wrong? But each pathway is full of people finding and seeking something.
our fellow citizens. And if you go deep into its past, they wanted to also discover the indwelling relationship of divinity in nature itself. This is a landscape of contemplation, yes. But also what takes hold here is a restless and relentless pulse of history. What I discovered in writing this book is I was writing kind of um, a hidden uh, history of the progressive spirit in America. Infused with the constantly changing sights of sky and blowing trees and grass and swooping birds and glinting water, all of these things giving it this vista, its strange power, I realize that there is much there to quicken the deadest and most benumbed spirit. When I'm feeling low, when I'm tired, I go to Mount Auburn. I don't know a place as enlivening as Mount Auburn, and it brings me back my life. Let's go back to Consecration Dell, because yes, there's a lot of history here. But what I found in talking with the staff is that they have a deep sense that they are an experimental garden for the future of America. The historian Aaron Sachs, who teaches at Cornell, he actually grew up in Cambridge and sort of had much of his childhood, as did Winslow Homer, uh, along all the rolling hills and vistas of Mount Auburn. And so he wrote an editorial in the Boston Globe. Some of you may remember it. He called Mount Auburn America's second greatest idea. Well, he was playing off of Ken Burns' notion of the national park system as being America's greatest idea. But he said, yes, you know, Yellowstone and Yosemite, these are all fabulous things. We have to work hard to preserve them. And wildness is the preservation of the world. Yes, all that's true. But he said, we won't win or lose this battle of a future, an ecological life of sanity, simply by preserving Yosemite. It is in places like Mount Auburn, in the midst of an urban life, where we preserve green, where our children can connect to something beyond the concrete, literally. He said, that's what makes Mount Auburn its history and its future. And its staff takes all this so seriously. They take everything that they do with an ecological tinge. That everything they do is an experiment to see how we in our urban life can preserve the beauty of a garden. And where that comes in most, uh, in a concentrated way, is in Consecration Dell, because it's a vernal pool. That means it's fed by water. It has, it has no access or no way to take water out. It, it simply fills. And let's face it, vernal pools in Massachusetts, especially eastern Massachusetts, are getting rarer and rarer. And when each one dies, the creatures that are dependent upon a vernal pool, they die as well. And so when I started to write this book, I thought I was going to be writing about Margaret Fuller and Buckminster Fuller, or her, uh, Margaret Fuller's great-great-nephew. And I thought, great, you know, history, my comfort zone. But the reality is I didn't know I would be writing about seven-inch-long spotted salamanders. 
And it turns out that that's one of the key areas where this battle is being waged, is can they preserve this vernal pool where these spotted salamanders come down on rainy spring nights and leave behind their sacks of eggs and they live another year. And, and so they decided about 20 years ago to do something that I in the book call forensic forestry. They decided that, that they were going to go back as closely as they could to what was this Dell like in 1831. Because Norwood Maples, invasive tree form, had just sort of taken over grasses and, and flowers that did not exist at that time, and some of them weeds, essentially. It was beginning to choke off this landscape. And so they decided, and it's taken decades to do it, because you can't just wade in and do this. It takes patience and vision, because when you replant, you have to see what develops in the course of time, you have to have a vision of how you're going to get back to that original, to that original Dell. So what was it like? And so everything that they did is paying off. The salamanders are back. The toads are back. The frogs are back. The great owl is back. And so when the birders flock in in spring, they often range around the high hillside around the dell, and they can actually, on those high hillsides, literally look into, into where the birds are nesting and resting directly. They have a very close and intimate relationship. And here is where history and ecology come together in such a powerful way. Because if they lose the battle with the salamanders, you and I have lost something precious that's almost impossible to get back. It made cultural sense to preserve this history, this landscape, this garden. And so there's a chilling moment at the end of The Great Gatsby where the narrator, Nick Carraway, looks back at the Long Island landscape that's been the scene of so much violence and crushed idealism, still somehow something magical emanates from the site. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into aesthetic contemplation, he neither understood nor desired face to face for the last time in history with something commiserate with his capacity for wonder. Now, it may seem odd to have a quote from Fitzgerald here, but I believe and I've experienced that when I go to Mount Auburn within that small garden, I find something that I rarely have words for. Something tugs at me a certain sad yet ennobling poignance, a hushed reverberation from the past. It's hard to say why this is so, why, unlike so many other hostels of mortality, this particular landscape seems so alive, and most of all, why it remains a spot 
commiserate with our sense of wonder. The modern world, let's face it, it doesn't have much room anymore for the notions of the founders who built Mount Auburn. You walk through there and you see angels and cherubim and seraphim all across these aging monuments. And it represents a relationship to life and death that's very far from ours. And you have to remember, who else is buried at Mount Auburn? Good old B.F. Skinner. He lies there, and his ideas of what we're truly made of, that we're just, we're just instincts and impulses and interleavers by which operant conditioning can shape our psychologies. Sometimes that can seem more to the point than that generation's talk of eternal souls and heavenly reunions with the dead. Well, respect, veneration, affection. Yes, we still come back to Mount Auburn to offer these to our departed, but expectations of resurrection, eternal existence, sometimes that feels very far away. But even as we live in the wake of these modern dislocations from the spiritual beliefs that created this landscape, we are not as far away from the founders as it sometimes seems. Theologies, theologies change, yes. Scientific understandings change, yes. Historical circumstances shift. But what does not change is human nature. We mourn our dead, we fear the unknown, we instinctively respond to signs of vivid life, from flashing birds to gold and russet dying leaves, and beauty tugs at us. And we, too, want to preserve something that we know we did not create, and I would add, would find impossible to recreate. Yeah. We're very different and very far away from Jacob Bigelow and Henry Dearborn and Edward Everett and all those who helped create Mount Auburn. Those visionaries who fell in love with that rolling landscape and decided not only to carefully shape and carve and fill it in, but also in the most telling of all gestures, to place within it the remains of those that they loved when Joseph's story gave the speech at Commemoration Dell in 1831, four of his children were already buried there. And so our gestures and customs of burial and commemoration, they're changing. They're changing very fast. I know this as a minister. But we understand. We understand instinctively who those people were. And because we do, we want to save what they created and built and planted. And in truth, I think that they deeply understood that they knew as little about death as we do. But we moderns, we yearn to believe in the midst of all these modern doubts in something as beautiful as they did. And so human yearning and longing and pain and in the end a strange sense of triumph. These human instincts do not change and are not lost. Mount Auburn is many things. 
It is a park. It is a cemetery. It is an arboretum. It is an outdoor art museum. It is an aviary. It is a wildlife preserve. But it is mostly this, a place of connection where we remember and celebrate the vivid lives of those who came before and those whom we will join. And when epitaphs and dates and finally even names are worn away, these stones will still speak a simple truth. We were once alive, so alive. We loved and are loved still. Thank you. All right. Thank you.